Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ tissue and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. And thanks for listening, guys. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. And I'm Nyla Schwab. Coming up on this episode of The Gifted Life. We'll be talking to a pioneer and expert in one of the biggest process changes in donation in decades that will absolutely increase the number of lives saved. Okay, Joey, I am very interested in that conversation. And that is actually a feeling. So we'll be talking more about that. Feelings. Okay, I'm nervous and I'm excited. All that and more right here on this episode of The Gifted Life. Thanks for joining us, guys. Hang on. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, you heard Joey at the top of the episode, one of the biggest process changes in the industry. This is a big deal. Huge. It is huge. And and I can't wait to see what the impacts or in the next two and three and five years. The ultimate goal, saving more lives. You had a one-on-one uh, conversation with someone in the know. Oh, oh, not just someone. She would be considered one of the experts and one of the pioneers in normal thermic regional perfusion. So let's listen in. We are very fortunate to have a wonderful guest who I'm a huge fan of. I had the good fortune of meeting her in March of this year at an NRP summit. Uh, normal thermic regional perfusion. And it's it's a huge technological advance and kind of process advancement that's taken place over the last couple years that we'll get into. But uh, she is Dr. Angie Wall. Dr. Wall is a bioethicist and also an abdominal transplant surgeon at Baylor Simmons Transplant Institute in Dallas. So that's a mouthful. I want to know, how does one become both a bioethicist and a transplant surgeon. So I actually did a pathway in medical school uh, where I did a joint medical degree and PhD. At my medical school, St. Louis University, they offered five different PhD tracks. And I had initially started in pharmacology and physiology uh, looking at stress responses of rats to various stressors. And my first year of medical school, I took a class in bioethics and I absolutely loved it. And the professor encouraged me to consider doing my PhD in bioethics. And so I did my second lab rotation, if you'll call it that, in, uh, in bioethics the summer after my first year of medical school and just totally fell in love with the concept of being able to study something a little bit uh, different than most MD, PhD students, but something that I thought would really touch patients kind of no matter what I ended up going into uh, in terms of a medical practice. So I did from after my second year of med school, I did uh, my full PhD in bioethics, which was just over three years and then returned to med school after that uh, for my third and fourth year and uh, fell in love with surgery and then did a general surgery residency. And during my residency, I just I thought transplant was by far um, the most interesting field of general surgery um, in terms of both the technical um, aspects of it, but also some of the patient care aspects. Um, And uh, it also 
lent itself to a lot of um, very interesting uh, bioethical questions. And so it fit really well with um, with my training in bioethics. And so I just ended up uh, going going into transplant, doing a fellowship in abdominal transplant surgery. And I think that um, both my, my technical training and uh, my PhD training, I think, just fit very well together. Well, Dr. Well, I think you're kind of a unicorn in this field. <laughs> Absolutely. There are a couple other transplant surgeons that have formal training in um, in bioethics, but um, there are very few of us. A couple out of like thousands. Correct. <laughs> I wanted to start by asking if we could kind of do an overview of donation after circulatory death versus brain death, because uh, mm-hmm. from what I understand, NRP, normothermic regional perfusion is really just for DCD donation, correct? Correct. So I'll start with the, with the basic, what I call pathways to donation. So there are two ways in which individuals can be pronounced dead uh, in the United States. One is through what's called neurologic criteria, and that is brain death or death of the entire brain, including the brainstem. The way that uh, brain death is determined is through a clinical test, which is a test of all the reflexes. And if those are absent, then we do what's called an apnea test, which makes sure that there's no um, there's no respiratory drive. And if those two things um, are consistent with brain death, there is Typically, a third test, which is um, some sort of a confirmatory uh, blood flow to the brain test. And if all of those tests come up as consistent with, with neurologic death, then that individual is pronounced dead using neurologic criteria. Those are the it, donation after brain death um, is is then uh, introduced as an option uh, to um, to to uh, the families or the surrogate decision makers, and in these individuals, while they're con- while they have been pronounced dead, they are still on uh, on machines that are supporting their organs, so still on a ventilator or on blood pressure medications or so forth, and still in the ICU. So these are what um, these individuals are: heart beating or brain dead donors um, who who are pronounced dead, maintain perfusion to the organs, perfusion being oxygenated blood going to the organs um, until the time of donation. And during the organ donation procedure, the organs are perfused up until the time that um, that they are, uh, that their, that preservation solution is, um, is put into the organs. And, uh, and then uh, the organs are taken out in order to be used for um, for transplantation. So that process means that the um, the time of death is different from the time of organ donation, and that can be that can be up to a number of days in which the um, the brain dead donor is managed to make sure that the organs are optimized, and then all the organs are allocated to uh, various recipients. In donation after circulatory death, this is the second pathway to donation, and it's based on the pronouncement of death that uh, that occurs after the cessation or the stopping of the heart and the lungs. So it's after a person stops breathing and their heart stops that death is pronounced, and then that death is confirmed after um, usually a five-minute hands-off period, and then organ donation occurs immediately after that second pronouncement or confirmation of death. 
And so the process for donation after circulatory death is a little bit different because what happens is that there is a decision to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatments in an individual who's suffered usually a traumatic or other type of non-survivable uh, brain injury. Mm-hmm. If that, that decision is made by the family in the absence of any discussion of donation, then if this individual is either a first-person um, has either decided to donate based on their driver's license or the family uh, has been approached and authorizes organ donation, then uh, all of the steps to organ allocation are taken prior to the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. And then in a controlled setting, usually in the operating room, all of the machines are stopped. And if that person dies within a short time frame, then uh, the organ donation procedure occurs uh, immediately after the confirmation of death so that the organs can be preserved because as soon as the heart stops and the and breathing stops, those organs are no longer getting oxygenated blood. So the um, organ procurement procedure must happen very quickly after the declaration of death so that the organs can be used for transplantation. Well, that was a, a mouthful and I, I felt like I could have left the room because you answered most of my questions so far. <laughs> So a couple of things, though, just to touch on, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. you know, that there's a waiting period uh, of five Mm -hmm. minutes. So what's what's the reason for the waiting period? So the reason for the waiting period is that there are um, what can happen after somebody's heart stops and they stop breathing is you can have something called an auto resuscitation. And what that means is that that individual, maybe their heart will take another beat or two, or they'll take a breath. Um, And if, and, and there have been studies of how long the window is for the um, where auto resuscitation is likely to occur. And I want to say um, maybe 2020 or so there was a there was a paper in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine that uh, that followed individuals who were pronounced dead by circulatory criteria and uh, and looked for evidence of auto resuscitation. And the longest time frame from uh, the pronouncement of death to what they considered an auto resuscitation event which was either a heartbeat or uh, or taking a breath was four minutes and 20 seconds. And so we've based that observation time uh, on that study to say that at five minutes, the likelihood of auto resuscitation is basically zero. We can't say it's absolutely zero because you never know what is going to happen in any individual circumstance. But based on this study, we're very confident that there will not be an auto resuscitation event passing the five minute mark. And if I recall, I read that study as well. Uh, the So what was considered a, a heartbeat was like five, five millimeter type. It was like a, of mercury. a mm-hmm. yeah, five millimeter of mercury. So thinking of a blood pressure, that requires basically a 90 millimeters of mercury to be sustainable mm-hmm. for life. You know, five millimeters is, is almost like what we consider artifacts. So it's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. very debatable even, you know, at that point where, uh, where what's a heartbeat and what's not, I think. If, at least that was my and take what it, it. Yeah, and what that, I think the other thing is, what does that heartbeat mean? I mean, in all of these cases, it was maybe a single heartbeat and it was what we would call a non-perfusing heartbeat, meaning not enough pressure to actually 
um, to actually push oxygenated blood to the organs. But the bottom line is that we want to be very confident that the individual has died and that they remain dead um, because as soon as we get the confirmation that this individual is dead, we proceed with organ donation, um, with the organ procurement um, operation. And it is and this this observation period gives us the confidence to say that this individual is dead and that they will remain dead and that we can proceed with a post-mortem procedure, which is organ donation. Comparing the two again, you know, you talked about donation after brain death mm-hmm. and donation after circulatory death. And of course, the brain death do- donation, you mentioned that there's circulation, like blood, mm-hmm. oxygenated blood circulating until actual perfusion of like what we call the cold perfusion takes mm-hmm. place. So so there's no lag time like a mm-hmm. donation after circulatory death where you mention, you know, of course, the patient is, is withdrawn from support. And then there's a, a time period where we just talked about that 90, that 90 or so millimeters of, of mercury blood mm-hmm. pressure needing to be sustainable. You know, once that drops, you've got this this window of a period where organs aren't getting as much oxygenated blood, mm-hmm. and then you've got this five-minute waiting. I can imagine the success rates probably aren't the same when you compare the two, right? So when you when the success rates in two ways are different. So number one is the utilization of organs, meaning just the choice to use the organs for transplantation. It's significantly higher in donation after brain death uh, donors because of the fact that all the information is known about the uh, about the organs going into it, and as you alluded to, those organs are perfused up until the time of procurement. So unless something is found in the operating room that really pushes a procurement team to say that this organ is not usable, there is a very high chance that those organs will be used um, for transplantation. In donation after circulatory death, the utilization rates are lower um, because of the fact that that there um, there is less known about the donor because we can't do as much upfront testing um, of the donor organs. And then there's also variability in the amount of time that people are comfortable with in terms of um, the what we call agonal time or the time where the organs are not being perfused. Um, so the utilization of organs for transplantation is lower with donation after circulatory death donors. The second thing is that the outcomes for, for the recipients of those donors are um, not as good in some ways. So from a kidney transplant standpoint, um, and as an abdominal surgeon, I'm going to talk about kidney transplant and liver transplant because those are the two most common organs that I transplant. Um, From an abdominal transplant standpoint, if you look at the kidneys, there is a higher rate of recipient delayed graft function in uh, donation after circulatory death kidneys versus donation after um, brain death kidneys. The ultimate outcomes of the kidneys over time for one year, three year, and five year survival are about the same if you base it on what's called the kidney donor profile index. But the um, but the delayed graft function rates are significantly higher with donation after circulatory death kidneys. And what that means is that it's a requirement for dialysis within the first seven days of transplant. And while it may not impact, the delayed graft function may not impact the overall graft outcomes in the long term, it does increase cost, increase hospital stay, and increases complication rates in the early post-operative uh, uh, course for those patients. From a liver transplant standpoint, the um, the tissue that is the most susceptible to having injury from uh, from not having good good blood flow, good oxygenated blood 
blood flow is the bile ducts or the biliary system. And so in donation after circulatory death, liver transplantation, there is a higher rate of biliary complications in recipients of donation after circulatory death um, livers as compared to donation after brain death uh, livers. And one of the issues with those complications is that the the most severe complication is called ischemic cholangiopathy, and that type of complication can actually lead to the necessity of a retransplant, um, which comes with a lot of um, complications and a pretty high risk of um, of death uh, in those patients who end up needing a retransplant because of an ischemic cholangiopathy. Um, and so there are there are both lower utilization rates to DCD donors and there are higher complication rates. Dr. Wall, that's one of the best explanations I've heard of why mm-hmm. DCD donor organs aren't utilized as high as brain dead donors. How is NRP uh, helping uh, kind of close that gap, I guess? Absolutely. So first thing is just to talk about what NRP is, because I think that that helps kind of explain why or help you conceptualize why it is an important and disruptive technology. So NRP is normothermic regional perfusion. So what normothermic means is that it is body temperature. Regional means that it is perfusion to one area of the body. And then perfusion is the movement of oxygenated blood around this around this region of the body. So the way that normothermic regional perfusion works is that it is used for donation after circulatory death donors, and it follows the same process. So the the individual is brought to the operating room, withdrawal of life-sustaining uh, treatment occurs, um, the, there is a pronouncement of death, a hands-off period, and then a confirmation of that pronouncement of death, and then the organ procurement procedure proceeds. Instead of going straight to a cold flush, what happens with NRP is that cannulas are placed just the same way that they're done with um, with a, with a standard rapid recovery. The uh, a clamp or a balloon occlusion device is placed in order to maintain perfusion to just the organs that are going to be used for transplantation. So either to the abdominal organs for abdominal NRP or to the thoracic and abdominal organs for um, for thoracoabdominal NRP, and then the cannulas are hooked up to uh, either an ECMO circuit or a modified cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, which is basically an external machine that that cleans the blood, oxygenates the blood, and then puts blood into the system and takes it out. And, and so it just basically runs blood through an external machine that oxygenates and cleans it and then puts it back into the system. So what happens with normothermic regional perfusion is that you go from, you have a DCD donor that instead of putting, instead of having an insult of the, um, of the, the time of not perfusion followed by cold flush and either machine or static cold storage, what you do is you re-oxygenate the organs in the body very quickly after they've had this, what we call an ischemic insult, and you recondition them in the body. And then you're able to, uh, to see how they function based on labs, based on visual, and you can even do biopsies. And then you're able to make an assessment of, yes, this organ is functioning well, it looks good, the biopsy looks good, and then you can proceed with the cold flush. 
So uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to be involved in a couple of these. Of course, we've had a handful here in Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and, and they're driven by the transplant centers. In other words, like you guys would, mm-hmm. would say, yes, uh, you know, that liver is a perfect fit for my patient. And, uh, and mm-hmm. then you would bring in your, the equipment and the, and the staff and things like mm-hmm. that. And it's amazing. You know, I've seen one with the, with the heart involved and seeing the heart reanimated and everything. It's, it's really interesting to see how all that, and you talked about the reconditioning, mm-hmm. like you've got an mm-hmm. hour now of perfect blood, oxygenated blood perfusing the organs before now mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, having to, uh, to be transported. I'm curious. So how long have you guys been doing it at Baylor and what kind of outcomes have you seen so far? Yeah, so we started um, in 2020. So we're we're going on uh, just over three years, I think, or just around three years. Um, we started by uh, accepting DCD uh, NRP organs uh, when a heart team uh, was going to be doing the perfusion. Um, and that's just by virtue of the fact that we already were doing a lot of uh, DCD donors with a standard rapid recovery technique. And uh, these were donors that we were already comfortable taking uh, with rapid recovery and the heart teams were great and very good at communicating and telling us, you know, the benefits of doing NRP. And so we, whenever a heart team came in with, uh, with their NRP, uh, plan, we would just proceed with doing the donor, uh, however they, um, however they decided to proceed. Um, we then uh, started an abdominal-only program because we were having such excellent results with the thoraco-abdominal donors. And what we realized is that there are very few DCD donors that end up being heart donors just because of the kind of needs for uh, for quality and assessment and so forth. So only about 5% of DCD donors uh, end up being able to donate their heart. Well, of DCD donors donate their kidneys and probably 70, 75% donate a liver. So if you only do NRP for the cases where the heart is uh, going to be used and you rely on heart teams to do the NRP, then you're only capturing a very small pool of donors and you're probably not capturing the donors that will um, end up being having the most utility in terms of reconditioning the liver and the kidneys. And so that's why we have, we've moved on to doing an abdominal only program. To date, we've done, I want to say 11 uh, liver transplants transplants from, uh, from thoracoabdominal NRP donors, and we've done 14 from, uh, from abdominal-only NRP donors. And what we've found so far, all of the graphs functioned immediately, which is the number one priority is you want to make sure you don't have any that, that don't function at all. Um, and then number two, we have had to date no no ischemic cholangiopathy biliary complications, and we've had a very low rate of other biliary complications. And the biliary complications that we've had have all been managed with um, with stents 
and with drains, and none have required reoperation or retransplantation. That's incredible. That's what makes me get excited about being able to try this new technology. What about the the kidneys? Have you guys seen uh, a significant, as far as your data at Baylor, have you guys seen a significant decrease in that delay graph function? So the issue with kidneys is that they get kind of allocated all over the place. And what happens with us, at least, is that we are not often the recipient center for the kidneys that we procure when we do um, normothermic regional perfusion. So we actually decided that we were going to do a study to look at the national outcomes of kidney from normothermic regional perfusion donors versus um, standard DCD donors, where we just compared those donors who donated their heart, which means that these were all very young, otherwise very good, uh, very good donors that should have excellent outcomes in terms of kidney graft function um, from either group. And what what we found in that study, uh, which came out in the American Journal of Transplantation uh, just a couple months ago, is that the delayed graft function rate for kidney transplant recipients from NRP donors was 12%. And from the uh, rapid recovery donors, it was about 40%. And we did a multivariate analysis to make sure that it wasn't based on donor age or kidney donor profile index or the, or like a simultaneous liver kidney transplantation. And taking into account all of those factors, the most um, the most predictive uh, factor in terms of reducing delayed graft function was having NRP as the perfusion technique. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It is. Uh, great information. And before before we leave, I, I remember one more thing uh, that you had spoken about uh, is that you guys do something a little bit different there. You guys don't withdraw support on some, on some donors uh, in the OR like we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Louisiana for our donation after circulatory deaths, you you withdraw in the ICU. So how's that possible? So we uh, our first NRP um, protocol for uh, for abdominal only donors was actually designed at our hospital, and it was designed in a way that we could do the withdrawal of life sustaining treatment in the ICU, and. The reason for that was so that families could be in the ICU with their loved one and um, they would be in a familiar environment with a nursing staff and with a physician staff that they were already familiar with um, and comfortable with. The way that that process worked is we would ask the family up front if they were okay with us placing cannulas ahead of time, specifically with our ECMO team placing cannulas. So it wasn't the transplant surgeons doing anything prior to the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. It was a third party team. If the family was okay with it, we got informed consent with a discussion with the ECMO team, place the cannulas ahead of time for ECMO, one in the femoral artery and one in the femoral vein, and then another uh, another cannula for what's called a balloon occlusion device um, in the other femoral artery. And that was all done with local analgesia as well as uh, appropriate anesthesia, uh, just kind of not full anesthesia, but appropriate so that we avoided any pain or anything like that. And then after the cannulas were placed, we would clamp them off and then the ICU team would proceed with withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. If the donor uh, died within the time frame acceptable for organ donation, we can hook the uh, the cannulas up to our NRP circuit, and uh, and then we use the balloon occlusion device to um, to keep the perfusion regional. 
And then we run the NRP uh, on the machine as we move to the operating room. And what that allows for is that we can go on NRP very quickly in the ICU and the family can say their goodbyes. We don't have to rush into the OR. We don't have to rush a family out of the OR. It's a much more sort of controlled process. And we felt like it was it was better for our families to be able to, to be with their loved one in the ICU and to not have to rush the organ donation procedure. So we've done that now on four donors at our hospital. And we offer that when we're here at our, at, um, at Baylor. Um, we uh, typically, it, when we go to other hospitals, they're more comfortable with OR withdrawals just because that's how they typically um, do DCDs. And so we have had cases where we've done sort of hybrid withdrawals where we put in sheaths ahead of time in the, in the ICU and then move the donors to the operating room. We've done some where the withdrawal is in the PACU um, or the post anesthesia care unit so that the family doesn't have to come into the OR. Um, any of those, uh, we have placed little tiny cannulas in um, just so that we can be a little quicker to go on NRP. But the bottom line is that this, uh, the ability to be more flexible with the location of withdrawal, I think is very important for families who their real hang up with donation is that they just don't want, um, they don't want end of life care to occur in the operating room. I think that is absolutely incredible. I love that you guys make that an option for the families. And I could talk to you all day. <laughs> and I appreciate so much that you're going to be coming back uh, to share with us on the um, some of the ethical and legal considerations with NRP. So uh, thank you so much. And uh, everybody, I hope you uh, join us on the next episode for continuation with Dr. Wall. Great. Thank you guys so much. on the Get to Life podcast, we're taking a moment for mental health. Yeah, and as the as the kids of uh, today say, I'm all up in my feels <laughs> wondering about what she's got to talk about next. I feel so outdated. I got to learn all the new lingo. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he used that right, but go ahead. <laughs> no. Okay, so I like really when I come to, to share, I think about what my life, my week's been like or what, what's going on in my life or, or maybe somebody else I've talked to. But, you know, talking to our families, there's so many emotions that right. families have and um, after they have a, a loss. And so when we come home, I come home, staff, I mean, we walk away with feelings. So everything we do, there's emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's the difference of emotions and feelings? Emotions are it's kind of interesting. So I don't know much about the brain, but I, I was reading how our emotions start in our brain, the limbic system, and mm -hmm. it sends a message through the vagus nerve, which is the biggest nerve in our body. Is that right? It connects uh, our brain to all I our biological so. system. It, it, yeah, it has a huge impact on your heart rate, and there's a whole lot of different systems. It does systems a lot of things, yeah. yeah. So it, it affects us emotionally, physically, um, these emotions. And sometimes we're, we're feeling something, like there is a sensation in our body, and that's our emotions. Um, what we do with them are our feelings. So emotions are basically unconscious. Feelings can be more conscious. So when we talk about that, we're just, it's really about getting friendly with your feelings. There's no judgment around feelings because they just 
they come and go. They're just part of us. It's what we do with them is our feelings. But um, Dr. Alan Wolfelt, he is a grief expert. He said, as strange as your emotions may seem, they are a true expression of where you are right now. Rather than deny or feel victimized by your feelings, I want to help you learn to recognize and learn from them. So get friendly with your feelings. And what that means, whether it's positive or negative feelings or emotions coming up, it, it's taken time to to see what they're telling us. Mm-hmm. They're they're teaching us. And the first thing to to really understanding what's going on is to acknowledge. Once you acknowledge your feelings, sometimes that can actually even bring down, I guess, the sensations that we're having. And the other next part is is naming them. So if you can recognize it and name it. So I have what's called an emotion wheel. And there's really That's thought- a lot of emotions. I, you what's see so it? cool oh, is you can Google oh. emotion wheel, but it's got like there's just your core emotions, like happy, sad, disgusted, mad, scared, surprised. Yeah. And then these kind of branch out. So when I said, oh, my gosh, I'm like you said, I'm excited. That's surprised. But if you want to take it even further. So when people are like trying to figure out how am I feeling, you can look at this and say, I'm sad. Well, what does sad mean? Sad can mean so many different things, right? It's a sad's the emotion. But what's the feeling attached to it? So what you're sad may be different than my sad. So I might be tired, which could make me, I could feel really sad. But when you think a little bit further, like if I say, hmm, I'm sad, why are you sad? And if I sit with that long enough, sometimes I can figure out, well, you know what? I'm not really sad. I am just empty. I'm numb. Maybe I've been talking so much to families that like I need some space to, 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 oh, to boot myself back up. Um, oh, I like that. It's We've got the, the emotion wheel where we can see it. <laughs> I know. And if you talk to Mike Steele, he'll say, I'll go through all these emotions. <laughs> we <laughs> do. We do. And in grief, that's just it. We have all these emotions. Yeah. And we need to stop and kind of try to figure out what we're what we're feeling and name it. And then accept it. Accepting, accepting it doesn't mean you have to really like it or do anything with it. It just means that you kind of say, hey, Mr. Sad, you're here with me right now. Mm-hmm. There's a movie. What's the movie? The um, Oh, what's the movie with the feelings? There's like a happy feeling. Uh, elemental. No, it's not. No, it's not no. like that. It's a great movie. Come on, Joe. You're up on But deck. adults sh- should watch it. Ted Lasso. No, that's a good one, too. <laughs> that's also a good one, and you must believe. Lots of emotions in there, too. But look around. You will see people's feelings. But when you're talking to somebody, if you can kind of hone in on how they're feeling or help them hone in, you can connect. Emotions, feelings, they connect us. You, you're trying to say inside out. I think it's inside, inside out. out. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you did you, wait, did you have any help with that? No. Just, uh, uh, because I'm <laughs> feeling a certain way about you getting the answer correct on that. One. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So just, you know, explore what you're, what you're feeling, and it really helps. So if I come in here and I'm nervous, I want to sit with that for a minute. And am I nervous or do I feel unprepared? Am I feeling like I'm off top? It guides me. Let your feelings guide you. You make me feel happy, Nyla. <gasps> that makes me happy to know I make you happy, Lori. Yeah. Awesome. And and that is some truth to that because I usually, you help me work through things. Mike Steele, the lucky guy every night. Like we t- 
this happened at work. This is how it made me feel. You just got to listen from beginning to end. And, and, and don't say if it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> or right. We're just going to go with it. But you can always say, I feel blank. I feel angry because yeah. blank, 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 blank. And that, again, just lets you have a, a deeper conversation with someone because you're, you're sharing and you're connecting. And that is what being humans is all about. I do that in a safe space. I have to feel like it's a trusted safe space to do that. I like that, Nyla. Thanks for sharing. I'm happy. I'm calm. What about you, Joe? You look relaxed. You relax. I see it. Maybe you have a topic you'd like for us to cover here on The Gifted Life. All you have to do is email us, info at thegiftedlife.org. And our question and answer segment today, how can I best share information about donation in my local community? That sounds like Lori written all over it. And that's the one that gets her excited. My heart is so happy, excited, (laughs) thrilled. All these feelings. (laughs) I love that. What I find is that when we have our volunteer base, they really connect with people out in the community. And some people are comfortable speaking and telling their story. So I love taking those folks out when we have um, 4-H University, something that we have here in Louisiana, or we go into these AHIT classes, something else that happens here in Louisiana, these medically-minded folks who want to learn a little bit more about donation. Um, And so those families really connect, and we think that's great. Not everybody's comfortable speaking publicly, right? So we use their other talent. So we have some who are professionals in the marketing field. And so they connected us with classes at LSU, for example, and that really helped us. We have others who have connections at the local chamber or at schools or at churches, and they get us in to help spread the word. So if you want to be part of the team and you want to help make it happen, we just have to find what your talent is. And here at LOPA, we use that and we talk to you and we get to know you a little bit. And then we form a plan and we work around your schedule because our goal is to make life happen. And we're one team, right? You hear us talk about that here on The Gifted Life. So if you want to get involved and say, um, that's not really what I like to, I don't, I, I'm not a, a sit at a health care, t- health fair. That was easy for me to say, right? <laughs> sit at a health fair or tell my story, but I can do this, then man, we're going to make that work. And so I love that. So if you're in Louisiana, you're listening to the podcast, it's very simple. You go online, lopa.org, L-O-P-A.org slash volunteer, and you sign up and you say, hey, I'm in this part of the state. And then whoever does community education in that part of the state, They'll contact you and we work on your plan. How can you help us make life happen? If you're not in Louisiana and you're listening, number one, hi, thanks for listening. Um, but you can go to organdonor.gov slash get dash involved slash volunteer. So it's the HRSA website, but it leads you to each OPO, organ procurement organization across the United States. And then that's where you start making your connections. I have this talent or I have this tie to donation, or maybe you're not tied, but you're really passionate about it and want to help. And so that's how it starts. You make a phone call and you start asking some questions and you figure out where you fit, what's comfortable and how you can do the most good. And let me tell you, there's going to be lots of excited people on the other side of that phone call. And we just want to all work together so welcome to the team nope. i was excited is that too long like nope. i could go on and I know, on right? <laughs> no, <it's> tell <laughs> she's feeling excited yeah i, I, I can tell i can tell and you know it made <laughs> me smile <laughs> it's contagious yeah yeah great question and obviously a very enthusiastic and better answer uh, by Lori. <laughs> uh, if you guys have a question please let us know give us a call 504-648-3477 
In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Amjad Otala, and we learn about Amjad from his family. He passed away in April of 2022. He was 24 years old. His two kidneys and his liver were gifted to three different individuals all under 30 years old. He is living through his gift to others. He was loved by so many. He was an amazing son, sibling, nephew, fiance, cousin, friend, coworker, and most of all, an amazing human. He was always ready and available to help others when help was needed. He was so funny with a contagious laughter. His smile and presence brightened the room. He is missed and loved each and every day. MJ is our hero forever. We pause and say thank you to MJ for the gift of life. Episode 218 of The Gifted Life in the Books, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime. Registerme.org. Yeah, of course. What a great uh, conversation that we had. Special thanks to Dr. Angie Wald for coming on and explaining some of the details about this new technology that's that's completely changing donation and, and hopefully can, can lead to many, many lives saved and, and ultimately get us to that goal of, of no one dying on the waiting list. We just started talking about it. More to come. Yes, yeah, certainly more to come. If uh, you liked what you listened to on this episode, please listen in on our next episode, episode 219, where we'll be diving a little further into NRP and some of the other uh, aspects around that. Listening and learning. The best place to find us, guys, and remember, we ask that you share this, um, is at our website, thegiftedlife.org. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps others to find us. On social media, we know you're on social. Please like our page, guys. On Facebook, it's The Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on both Instagram and Twitter at Gifted Life Pod. Our ask is that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Until next time. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Nala Schwab. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 